It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, June 19th, the Preschool Pomp and Circumstance Edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry 5, Sam 3, and Wally 1. And I'm Dan Coyce. I'm also an editor at Slate, and I am the dad of Lyra, who is 9, and Harper, who is 6. Hey, Dan. Hello. On today's show, we'll talk to New York Times reporter Pam Bellick about her two-part story on postpartum depression, and then it's graduation season But who cares about high school or college graduation? I'm talking about preschool and kindergarten graduation. Dan and I will debate whether there should even be such a thing. Also, parenting triumphs and fails, recommendations, and a great listener call on how to handle someone else's kid kicking the back of your seat on a plane. But before we get to all that, a quick reminder, two quick reminders. One, subscribe to Mom and Dad Are Fighting in iTunes or your favorite podcast app and keep spreading the word. And also, another pitch, if you are a fan of Slate, please consider subscribing to Slate Plus, which is our special membership plan that gives you all kinds of perks in exchange for just a little of your money. You'll get bonus podcasts and extra segments for many of the podcasts you already know and love, a chance to more directly interact with your favorite Slate writers, like Dan Coyce, editors, sorry, Dan's actually an editor, sorry, editors, Dan Coyce, and podcasters, and also you'll be supporting great web journalism and this very podcast. It's free to try for two weeks, so you should go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. Okay, that's all out of the way. On to triumphs and fails. Dan. Uh, all right, I've got a triumph this week. Allison, you saw evidence of this triumph on social media. Yes, uh, I'm very excited. Wonderful musical evidence. Um, so a while ago, the mom of a friend of Lyra's emailed and asked if we wanted to go in with her on tickets to a concert, to the Katy Perry show that is next week in a big um, arena in Washington, D.C., and I thought, sure, you know, that'd be fun. The kids will love it. And I bet I'll have a pretty good time, too. And so we went ahead and bought them. And we, like, planned it. We told the kids we were doing this concert. But then as it approached, I became, like, slightly obsessed with the notion that I did not want my children to spend their entire lives having to tell friends that the first concert they ever went to was Katy Perry at the Verizon Center. Like, it'll be a great concert and it'll be really fun, but it shouldn't be their first concert. Like, your first concert should be something amazing. And so this weekend, this past weekend, we just in advance of the Katy Perry show, we brought them to Meriwether Post Pavilion, which is a big outdoor amphitheater in Maryland, to see Casey Musgraves, the country singer Casey Musgraves. Um, Officially, Willie Nelson was the headliner of the show, but we left before Willie Nelson played and the air got really totally smoky. But wait, Um, do you want them? I know this is I'm interrupting you, but do you want them going forward to say their first concert was a Casey Musgraves concert or a Willie Nelson concert? I want them to say it's a Casey Musgraves. They don't even know who Willie Nelson is. Oh, okay. um, the, because the girls love Casey Musgraves. They really, really like They love that album. They listen to it all the time. And so they love the show. They loved being able to say that they went to a Casey Musgraves show. And I really loved seeing my kids sing along to the chorus of Casey Musgraves' big hit, Follow Your Arrow, which we're going to play here because it's so great. So just imagine a nine-year-old and a six-year-old loudly singing along to this. Lots of noise. Kiss lots of boys. Kiss lots of 
So yeah, so my triumph, Allison, in short, is stage managing an important childhood milestone for my kids so that they will seem cooler later in life. I thought your triumph was going to be having your children on video singing those lyrics, which are oh, that's awesome. wonderful I mean, that... to see. And if anyone is Facebook friends with Dan, you can see it. Maybe we'll put, can we post the video to our page, Dan, or is that too much? That's a great question. Probably too much. <laughs> okay. Yes, that's also an auxiliary triumph. And I'm glad that they love that song and that I have on video them singing Kiss Lots of Girls, if that's what you're into. But mostly, I just want them to seem cool later. Okay. That's, that's I think, more important. What honestly. was your first concert? I'm not convinced that saying you that they, their first concert was a Casey Musgraves concert will make them cool later, but... It will make them cool <laughs> to the right people, Allison. What was your first concert? My first concert was In Excess opening for the Go-Go's. Oh, my God. It was amazing. It was a great show and one I'm very proud of today. Okay. What was yours? The Monkees at the Canfield Fair. Okay. So, see, I win. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure no. that's true, actually. I win. Let us know, listeners. Monkeys at the Canfield <laughs> Fair or in excess. And the Go-Go's. And the Go-Go's. Well, the Go-Go's is, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. I have a fail. Shocker of shocks. So, actually, this fail might be useful to the listener who called in. I'm sorry, we're not putting your call on the air, but to the listener who called in asking for us to crowdsource her question, which is, should she have a third kid? So, a lot of people ask not just me, a lot of people, a lot of parents ask each other, do you think it was harder to go from zero to one kid or one to two kids? Or if you have more, two to three or three to four. And my answer was always, is always that the hardest was zero to one because that's when you kind of, your life completely changes. Like you give up everything that you're used to. You no longer sleep. Your time is no longer your own. You know, it's transformative, not just emotionally, but also just like day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute. And then second one, I don't know, piece of cake. It was just like adding on to that. And I thought the same of the third until maybe like six months ago when our lives, the Benedict Cook household, began to fall apart. And we are like always on the last square of toilet paper, just out of milk, like just living on the edge at every moment, (laughs) one forgotten permission slip away from total disaster. So my fail this week was that Sam started camp. Uh, before Harry started his camp and it turned so whatever their hours changed and they both needed to be picked up at three o'clock on opposite ends of the neighborhood by our nanny which I did not remember slash recognize slash realize when I signed Sam up for camp thankfully our nanny at the last minute did remember and said like how are we going to do this and I went scrambling she split herself in two like a superhero she is a superhero but I went scrambling begging neighborhood friends to pick up Harry from school. Thank you, neighborhood friends who came through. But then I forgot to alert the school that these neighborhood friends would be picking up Harry and they're not just like allowed to let a kid go to someone who is not, you know, allowed to take the kid. Thankfully, again, our nanny came through and texted me and said at the very last minute, like, does anyone at school know? So I guess in the end, it was a near miss. It was a near near fail, but all the kids got picked up and no one was left in tears, but still it felt like a fail. So that's my fail. Right. Well, that's I, I mean, that is a bummer because I am familiar with those experiences, too, where you feel like, oh, God, like like I'm not I have I have ceased being able to hold it together and it's all falling apart. And only other people stepping in to save me has saved my family from total ruin. <laughs> right. Right. Thank God for friends. Yes, that's that's an excellent fail. Good job. OK, moving on to our first topic. This week, New York Times reporter Pam Bellick published a two part story on maternal mental illness or what we typically call postpartum depression. It's an important piece that shows how widespread and multifaceted this illness is, and we are so happy that Pam is joining us on the phone. Hi, Pam. Hi, happy to be here. 
So what are some of the things you discovered about this illness that you didn't know going in? Oh, there was really a lot that I didn't know. Um, first of all, um, you know, the sort of name postpartum depression turns out to be kind of a misnomer in several ways. One thing that scientists have been learning and that doctors have been seeing is that very frequently these symptoms develop in pregnancy. In fact, possibly as many as 50% of the cases actually start developing during pregnancy. And those symptoms are often missed because women don't really know how to recognize them. And also some of the symptoms like you know, sleeplessness and irritability um, are things that uh, pregnant women who aren't depressed can also experience. So it's, it's often hard to diagnose and people don't expect it. You're not expecting that you're, that you're going to be depressed. Society has told you that you're not supposed to be. Um, so that was one thing. And then I was also surprised by the range of disorders and illnesses that come under this umbrella of, of postpartum depression, often anxiety, OCD-like symptoms, bipolar disorder-like symptoms. Um, and so it's really much more complex and, and variable um, than certainly I thought and, and apparently many of our readers thought as well. Reading your piece made me realize that, well, postpartum depression or this larger, <laughs> what you're calling maternal mental illness, is a lot less taboo to talk about than it used to be. I feel like when I was pregnant, I mostly would get sort of fairly sterile messages from the medical community warning new mothers to seek help if they experience certain symptoms. But apart from from that or from uh, apart from anonymous message boards, we rarely hear from the women who experience the illness themselves. So uh, I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners you know, a little bit about the women you met for this piece and also just talk about how important it was for you to tell their stories, particularly Emily's story. I think you're right that the, in very recent years, there has been a bit more openness with some celebrities, kind of Brooke Shields, you know, kind of discussing the fact that they had postpartum depression. But it's still very much of um, a phenomenon that I think is in the shadows. And, and I think many women are ashamed about it. They're embarrassed. They're frightened by their own thoughts and how they could possibly be having these what are called intrusive thoughts, but that's rather a sterile term for, for really, really frightening visions of what they could possibly conceive of doing to their child. That's a very, you know, strong hallmark of this. Now, the story you told of, of Emily and, the, and the, just the feeling she had sort of constantly with her second child is really kind of amazing. Yes, and also I think Jean Marie Johnson, one of the other women in, in our first part, um, just imagining, you know, slamming her baby against the wall or suffocating her or dropping her from a sort of bridge in a mall onto a skating rink. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that, that women both, you know, both have these feelings and also that, that some of them would be willing to, to come forward. I, I think they were just remarkably courageous. And they all said to me many, many times, you know, I just hope that this will help inspire a conversation about this. I hope that we can, you know, just telling one story, if we can just save one woman from going through this. And I, I felt it was very, very genuine, their motivation. Um, and so it was, you know, kind of a privilege to be uh, a part of that. 
Okay, great. Thank you so much for joining us, Pam. And we encourage all of our listeners to go read Pam's piece, which we'll, which we'll post on, on Slate's website. Both pieces. Both pieces. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So each week we take a call and question from a listener, and we would love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 424-255-7833. That is 424-255-RUDE, like what I was about your kid's Casey Musgraves concert. <laughs> Ask us anything, and we will do our best to answer. So here is today's question. It comes from Jesse. I'm calling to see what you think about stopping a child from kicking the back of your seat in an airplane. I was recently flying. My seat was not reclined per Dan, and a child was kicking my seat. I looked over my shoulder, looked at the mom. She sort of made a half-hearted attempt to get her son to stop, and then the next time he kicked me, I just reached between the seats and grabbed his ankle, uh, and there was no more kicking after that. Was that overly aggressive? Uh, seemed to get the message across. The child did not cry, and the mother actually seemed maybe a little grateful that there was her son could see some consequences to his actions. But, you know, maybe it was over the line. Maybe there'd be a better way to do that. I applaud your chutzpah, Jesse. <laughs> uh, that was that was a bold move, a bold move. I could see a scenario that ends with you being thrown out of the plane and arrested in, in, in that. But you were not, and it ended up great. Um, and in general, I would say that uh, I am pretty free in reprimanding other people's kids. Um, because it takes a village to keep children from being fucking monsters on airplanes, right? Um, and so I I try not to step on other people's parenting, but if a child is doing something and the that is, like, totally egregious like that, or, like, at the pool the other day when random youths in the pool were just willy-nilly spraying every adult alongside of the pool with their water guns, I will, like, sharply speak to those kids. Um, and I feel like that is totally acceptable and not and not objectionable, though people will object to it sometimes. But I comfort myself by thinking that I'm right and they're wrong. However, I generally draw the line at putting my hands on other kids. Now, that doesn't mean that it can't work and that it didn't work in this case. But I do think that that is where you're running a much greater risk of a parent overreacting or or reacting in some way that escalates the entire situation way out of control, like instantly, because parents can get can really get nervous about that, rightfully so in many cases. So while I am impressed with you, Jesse, I would say that I probably would not have had the stones to do what you did. Yeah, I think I feel the same way. When I put myself in your shoes, Jesse, I'm like really excited about what you did. <laughs> I <laughs> I can feel how good that must have felt. But and I and I bet in a way that you're right when you said the mother seemed a little grateful. I also can sort of um, relate to being a mom on a plane and like you can't like there's you just can't stop your kid from doing that. Like they're swinging their goddamn legs and they just won't stop and they don't care that they're kicking the seat. And you tell them over and over again and you push your arms on their legs and they and they just they whether or not they even know that they're doing it, they they won't stop. So I guess in a way I can see the mom being grateful that like you scared her kid a little bit and stopped it. And now she doesn't have to worry about it because all you're doing, all she was doing was sitting there and worrying about how angry you faithless person in front of her was, was getting in, in right. your seat. Right. However, I probably also think that if I had, if someone had reached back and grabbed my kid, I would have been pissed. <laughs> so I don't know what you tried before that, but I guess maybe being the asshole who says, hey, can you stop your kid from kicking my seat 
instead of being the asshole who grabs the kid is at least a better first approach. <laughs> right. Well, and, I, and kids really, in a circumstance like that, I find that kids often will take just even a simple verbal reprimand from a stranger much more seriously than they do anything from their own parent. Right. Like, and so I bet that if you had just turned around and, and not even talked to the mom or just talked to both of them or just talked to the kid and said, excuse me, that's very uncomfortable when you kick me. Can you please stop? The, that would have, that kid would have totally snapped to attention. Yeah. But we're not mad at you, Jesse. We get it. We get it. No, we get it. Well, I would not have yelled <laughs> at you. I would have silently seethed, but also sort of been impressed by you had it that been me. All right. Thank you for the call, Jesse. Good call. Let's move on to our second segment. It is the end of the school year. Happy end of the school year, Allison. Ooh. Uh, the end of the year is already kind of bananas, like for everyone. Everything is crazy. The kids are antsy, and all the teachers are counting the days until they can get away from the kids or the parents or both. And I am definitely like completely over the cavalcade of events and projects that only seems to be increasing as the school year comes to a close. But in many schools, there is one big final event that still needs to happen, and that is graduation, a big graduation ceremony. And not just from high school or even from middle school. I'm talking tons and tons of kindergartners and preschoolers in caps and gowns, like marching to pop and circumstance and shit. My kids celebrated their last days of preschool with cute little ceremonies. One really, in fact, did have pop and circumstance. They gave performances. They were so proud of their accomplishments. They loved them. The parents loved them. And it was like a little bit over the top. But Allison, come on. Don't you agree that this new tradition while slightly crazy, is also totally adorable and worth doing? I do not. Um, however, our intern, Laura, our wonderful intern, Laura, pulled up all of these blog posts from cranky parents against kindergarten and preschool graduation, and reading them, I was cringing that I'm going to now be one of those people. However... You sound like one of those people. <laughs> hey, I'm all for an end-of-year party. I'm as excited as the next guy to go to my son's kindergarten well, they're calling it stepping up but whatever kindergarten event where he will be stepping singing. up to the streets right where he, will he, where he and his classmates will be singing songs from greece and uh, bruno mars but i i just i mean i object to the graduation framing of it and in, especially the like little caps and gowns and handing out at least at my son's preschool graduation handing out blank diplomas like there was like a rolled up piece of paper tied with a ribbon that they each got, and then when we took them home, we opened it, and it was, there was nothing on it. Uh, he can color his own diploma with his hopes and dreams. It's just ridiculous. I mean, what, you know, I, again, like, I'm not against there being a party at the end of the year. I'm, you know, maybe a little tired of all the school events, but but that's okay. It's really fun, and I'm happy that it was a good year of school, but I don't see why we need to market in this way. But that's such a like a grump objection. Like who it doesn't devalue your diploma that your kid got a fake diploma for kindergarten or preschool. It's a it's nice thing that is a lovely touching ceremony for the parents and that for the kids is like a real measure of excitement. Like I would prefer a little graduation so ceremony where they walk up and grab a diploma than forcing them all to fucking sing Bruno Mars, which half the kids don't even want to do and terrifies them. Like I would much rather have Something like that where kids get to pretend to be big people of the sorts that they have seen in a way that kids so love to do. And in a ceremony that will mean something to many of the parents than to, than to just like do a baloney performance. But what are we trying to instill in them? Are we trying to say to them like that they have really sort of achieved something great? Or are we just trying to say to them that, you know, what, what, what is the message of these of the ceremony? 
the message i i agree with you that the optics are slightly messed up like i agree with you that actually succeeding and completing preschool is not a great life accomplishment in that all it means is that time moved in a linear fashion from and fall like, to spring i made and i dropped you off every day right and you were not kicked <laughs> out for disciplinary reasons but nevertheless i do think that for kids who have not had these kinds of stepping up moments right as your school so ably puts it it does feel like an accomplishment they feel like they have they are becoming a different person and that they really grew from the beginning they dimly remember the beginning of preschool and how different it, it was and they were then and they know all the things that they have learned and all the ways that they've gotten better at circle time or whatever bullshit they're doing in preschool and it means something to them and i see no harm in acknowledging how meaningful it is to them and in addition it is the thing that grandparents love more than anything else in the world. Maybe the key is that they should have these ceremonies, but parents shouldn't have to go. They should have them and the kids do them and grandparents show up, but then the parents can just show up for the snacks afterwards. My objection is not to having to go. I just don't know how many times we have to like applaud them for even real things that they've accomplished. We have these, we have sticker, uh, whatever, those magnets on our fridge that have different words on them that the kids are supposed to like move around and make poetry. And the other day, my kids were like putting the words in little um, rows, one for adjectives that described Harry, one for adjectives that described Sam, one for adjectives that described Wally. And Harry put genius <laughs> under his because he thinks he's a genius because we told him that he's, you know, really good at reading and smart. And I thought, Ugh, like, you know, and I told him he's not a genius. And, and we had, you told you know, him he's not a genius. Yes. What if he is a genius. <laughs> He's not a genius. <laughs> oh, Allison. He's and I'm just going to internalize that lack of faith, and you've just ruined everything. I just don't know that he needs to be so proud of himself for getting through kindergarten. I think that of all the things that a kid should be proud of himself for, an actual transferring from one academic level to the next is like the least objectionable I can imagine. Like telling a kid he's a genius just because he lines up his magnetic poetry adjectives or just because he read a book or something. Yes, I agree that that's like over the top. But an actual marker of life change and moving on to a new world or a new school or something – recognize that yes recognize this thing that actually matters to the kid like in a bigger way than everything else mm. I, I think you're being a killjoy well i'll report back next time how i felt about the stepping up ceremony all right and please tell me which bruno mars song it is that they sing and provide audio you possible. can count on me like <laughs> one two three it's been in my head for ever yeah since they started practicing it all right so listeners we want to hear what you guys have to say do you feel like I am right that these ceremonies are wonderful transitions from one stage of life to another, or are you a monster like Allison? Please email us at momanddadatslate.com, M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com, and let us know. Um, if you're a monster, we'll definitely identify you on the air and tell the world. I feel like that Kristen Wiig character on Saturday Night Live on the, on the Weekend Update that does the movie reviews, the ant that's always like, wah, wah. Yep, that's you. <laughs> You're the Debbie Downer uh, to steal another Saturday Night Live yeah. character. All right. So recommendations. Um, Allison, do you want to go first? Sure. I want to recommend a New Yorker online piece by Betsy Moraes called, I think that's how you say your name, Betsy, called What Keeps You Up at Night about bedtime procrastination. 
which is defined by a new study as failing to go to bed at the intended time while no external circumstances prevent a person from doing so. A.K.A. every night. In right. I thought this piece was very, a very funny look at a bunch of actually, you know, new research about our inability to go to sleep when we say we want to go to sleep, even when there's nothing pressing keeping us up. And it links at the end to an onion piece with the headline, man, man honestly thinks he's going to get to bed early. Uh, so I really relate to this. You probably all relate to this. And I think especially as parents, we relate to it because it's very hard to go to bed early when like you finally get the kids to sleep at nine o'clock or whatever time you put your kids to sleep and you want time, you have work to do, you have dishes to do, you have TV to watch and you want some time to yourself. And so I, every night have the best intentions of getting into bed by 11 and I go to bed around one. Yep, that's that describes our house too, and it's the exact same problem that we finally feel like now we can accomplish the stuff we did not manage to accomplish. And the only solution we have found is that we actually, basically, Ollie and I find that the only time we even have conversations anymore is once we have gone to bed. So, like the the having that to look forward to has encouraged us to get to bed slightly earlier. Like we actually then can like talk about things and tell each other what's going on and whatnot because. Because, like, that's basically the only time we do it. That's so, so nice. You can't do that if you live in a tiny apartment and your kids are, like, surrounding you. Their bedrooms are just, like, right up against your room. Oh, yes. That <laughs> is a problem. That is a problem. Uh, that's a great piece. I, I cannot wait to read it because that definitely is an issue facing us as well. Um, I thought at first when you described it that it was dealing with bedtime procrastination on the part of children. Another problem. Another very real thing. A very real issue in our home uh, as epitomized by the phrase, Oh, just one more thing. I just have to X, whatever. I just have to whatever. Whatever stupid thing that they have to do, which <laughs> right. is not actually necessary in this world. Right. All right. My recommendation is a book. It's a graphic novel um, for teens called This One Summer. It's by Jillian and Mariko Tamaki. It is a totally lovely new comic that just came out this month about two girls uh, ages seems like they're maybe around 13 12 or 13 who are beach friends that is they don't see each other in their everyday lives but they hang out every summer for two weeks at neighboring houses on the sort of ramshackle ontario ontario lake resort that they their families have stayed at for years and years and years and so it's about this one summer that they spend together um and uh where they learn new things about each other and come to terms with some issues in each of their families and learn a little bit about love and sex, but not too much. Um, and it is very sweet and very emotional and is really, really, really gorgeously drawn. And I really loved it. It is out now from First Second Books. It is called This One Summer. And I would recommend it for smart readers who are like maybe 12 or 13 or older. It's really good. That sounds great. And I also love the idea of beach friends. I didn't have beach friends, but like pool friends we all have the yeah. you know we all have those friends in the summer that you don't see at school and you see every summer at the pool and i love that uh okay and that's our show please email us at mom and dad at slate.com that's m-o-m-a-n-d-d-a-d at slate.com with your thoughts about today's show parenting tips and suggestions for future podcasts please subscribe to our podcast on itunes and please call us with your questions at 424-255-7833 Thanks to Ann Hepperman for producing this podcast and also to Andy Bowers, executive producer of All Sleep Podcasts. Thank you to our intern, Laura Smith. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Allison. And thank you all for listening. If you ever find yourself stuck in the middle of the sea, I'll sail the world to find you. If you ever find yourself lost in the dark and you can't see, I'll be the light. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.